Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. This sermon series is really just a walk through the Bible one book at a time. Instead of using a magnifying glass on the scriptures, we are in a sense using a wide-angle lens to catch the big picture of the Bible. And as I said, we're calling this sermon series Table Read. A table read is when players in a drama sit down at a table and they read the entire script of the drama from beginning to end, which gives these actors and actresses two things. It gives them access to the big picture, which in turn gives them confidence to play their unique role well. And I hope we believe that the Bible here is not so much a how-to book as the true rescue story of the world. It's a divine drama. And this divine drama, we've been saying, elevates us and it lowers us at the same time. It lowers us because we are not the rescuers. We are not the hero of this true story of the world. But it elevates us because as we read this story, we understand that Jesus, the hero, enlists us into his rescue mission. And gives us a significant part to play. Yes, we have a part in this script. But for us to play this part well, we need to understand the big picture. In other words, we need to have what we're calling a table read. In September, we launched with Genesis and today we're in First and Second Kings, which, fun fact, actually, when First and Second Kings was given to God's people, it was on one scroll. So for the rest of this sermon, I'm calling one and two kings, kings. Deal? Kings. Well, just like Samuel, one and two Samuel last week, kings is an epic. But in my opinion, even more so. So Samuel covers about 100 years. Kings covers 400 plus years. And Samuel, you can hang your hat on a couple key characters. Well, in Kings, we're going to encounter 39 kings, 10 prophets that are named, and many others who are unnamed. It's an epic. And so before we pray and get started, I want to try to present the big picture as we've done each week of First and Second Kings. I want to make it less intimidating and more inviting, because I'll be honest, in my own life as a follower of Jesus... I've neglected First and Second Kings. I've neglected these books because it's been, in a way, very intimidating to me. But I'm convinced that Kings is a treasure store for anyone who follows King Jesus. And so buckle up, here we go. <laughs> uh, even though we have in our Bibles 1 and 2 Kings, or First and Second Kings, it might be better, I think, to consider Kings in three parts. And we'll divide it up this way. The rise and fall of Solomon, that's chapters 1 through 11. The divided kingdom, which is chapters 12 through 2 Kings 14. And then the unthinkable exile, we'll call that, which is how it ends, chapters 15 through 25 in 2 Kings. Now I want to take a closer look at each of these in turn. So starting with the rise and the fall of Solomon, who is who? David's son. Remember this? So there are moments in this section, chapters 1 through 11 of 1 Kings, that are super encouraging. They're really encouraging to the reader. They're really encouraging as we engage this. 
And I'll call them sort of my top five. And this is how I'll put it. The donkey, the art talk, wisdom, Edenic joy, and the temple. <laughs> what do I mean? Well, let's start with the donkey, okay? So in chapter 1, verse 35, if you have your Bibles open, Solomon rides into Jerusalem, David's city, on a donkey for his coronation. Does that sound familiar? And this is encouraging because God said this would happen. So in 2 Samuel, if you remember from last week, chapter 7, verse 16, God says to David, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time. And your throne will be secure forever. And so right away we're encouraged because we see that happening in David's son, Solomon. The second encouraging thing that I see in this is what I'm calling the R talk. Do you remember this? From last week, the R. What is that? Well, this is a good way of understanding these uh, aspects of God's story. So the R stands for God's representative, His King. And the circle stands for all of His people, Israel. And the X right there is the average Israelite. And what did we learn last week? That as goes the R, so goes the little X's. God's people. Remember, Israel doesn't actually need a king. God is their king, which means any human R over God's people must resemble God or else they're just in the way. It's like this. Imagine the board of the Ohio State hiring a sort of rabid Michigan fan as their president. They wouldn't ever do that. Why? Because they want someone who bleeds scarlet and gray to what? To represent the campus to not only their students, but prospective students as well. This R, in other words, is supposed to reflect the very heart of God to not just God's people, but to all of the watching world. And as goes that R, so goes God's people. And so what I love about 1 Kings chapter 2 is that we see David give Solomon the R talk. <laughs> David essentially says to Solomon in the first five verses of chapter 2, and I'm quoting verse 3, follow all his ways, my son. Be an R. And it will go well. And that's a good start. Which takes us to chapter 3, the wisdom piece. This is another key, I think, in, uh, or another encouraging note in my top five is the wisdom that we understand. So Solomon humbly asks for an understanding heart to rule his people well at this point. And so God gives them this gift of wisdom. And for the record, I cannot wait to get into the wisdom books of the Bible with you all. And that's encouraging. And then everything, if we go all the way to chapter 4, sort of culminates in this section. And so when I say everything, I mean everything. Everything that we've been doing so far, starting in Genesis, seems to lead up to this point. If the Bible is the story of Eden, and then exile from Eden, or, or sort of Eden lost, and then God's promise to restore Eden so that he could walk again with his people, if this is the whole storyline of the Bible, chapter 4 looks a lot like... Eden restored. Verse 20 says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, which is like a direct quote to God's promise to Abraham. 
I will multiply you so that you're like the sand by the sea. And then verse 20 continues, and they ate and they drank and they were happy. And that is exactly what we would expect with Eden. But wait, if we continue reading in chapters 5 through 7, we see the temple. Things seem to get better. Solomon upgrades the traveling tent, or so he thinks, to the solid temple. David wanted this. God pressed pause. You remember this last week? And now that he, Solomon is sort of sitting there, he's looking around, and he's like, things look like Eden. Things look good. Everybody's happy. Inside and outside. I'm going to build that house for God. Because after all, this is Eden, I want him walking among us. And that's what he does. Which, by the way, is probably why Solomon's builders are told to carve palm trees and gourds and open flowers all over the place, if you read the details. Because it's, in a sense, Eden restored. And so by the end of chapter 8, Solomon is on his knees, his hands are outstretched, he's praying, and he's asking the Lord to stay near his people always. Why? Well, verse 60, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. This is Edenic joy. This is Edenic intimacy with God, a godly R at the top of the circle, happiness within the circle, mission to the nations, story over, right? No, sadly, no. This is a theme throughout the Bible. Not everything is as it seems. There are what scholar Ian Provan, he calls time bombs all throughout these chapters waiting to blow. And to see these time bombs, we need to get to know kind of obscure text in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 17. This was God's standard for a king. Verse 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Is God anti-horse? No. No. If you're a veterinarian science major, you can rest. You can rest. No, but he does want his people to trust in him and not in military strength, which is what is going on in this. And then verse 17, He shall not acquire many wives for himself. This becomes an issue. Lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. It's like this thing is targeted right towards Solomon. These are three warnings. Disordered wealth, warfare, and wives. And we get not-so-veiled hint that Solomon fails on all three of these counts. And so while everything's sort of going well, all the things that I sort of mentioned to you, we have in the middle of it all these time bombs. So that in chapter 4, verse 26 and 28, we learn that Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses. And he gets more in chapter 10 from, guess where? Egypt, of all places. And we might think, no big deal, but again, Israel's kings were meant to model trust in the Lord, not in military strength, strike one. And the second, excessive gold. In this, in this section of the Bible, you're basically blinded by gold, aren't you? More to the point, Solomon is blinded by the gold. Gold is everywhere in chapter 10. So then in verse 14, it says that Solomon acquires 666 talents of gold. Have you heard that number before? 666 talents of gold. If you've ever wondered what that number means in the Bible, this is probably a good place to start. Strike two. And then these two time bombs kind of explode in chapter 11 where we read that Solomon loved and clung to two biblical words that were sort of meant to describe fidelity and faithfulness to the Lord. So Solomon loved and clung to 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
And so it's no surprise that by the end of chapter 11, Solomon's Eden starts to crumble. Enemies from the outside threaten Israel, and one from the inside too. And his name's Jeroboam. Hang on to that name, because he'll show up in section 2, which we're calling the divided Section 2, and this is the biggest section. Solomon dies. His son, Rehoboam, I'm going to quiz you later, takes his place. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes his place. But remember Jeroboam? Jeroboam leads a sort of people's uprising. It turns out Solomon was also tyrannical with conscripted labor. And so there, in a way, God's people are kind of glad that Solomon's gone. And they don't want his son, Rehoboam, to rule them. No, thank you. Which makes sense because when you read about Rehoboam in these chapters, chapter 12, he's a classic bully. I wish you had time to explain that. He looks more like Pharaoh than he does Moses over God's people. And just like that, Israel is broken into two pieces. You have Jerry, we'll call him, in the north, and Rehoboam in the south. Kind of confusing, right? Are you, who's confused already? <laughs> I mean, if your brain is in the blender, then I'm sorry to say it only gets worse. <laughs> um, but I want to help. When I was reading the Bible for the first time, I remember as a follower of Jesus, I wish somebody would just given me these, well, I'll give you, I'll give you three keys. Three keys that will help us navigate this second section. I'll call it the split screen, the prophets, and the nations. So first, the split screen. From here on out, in one and two kings, okay? From here on out, it is a split screen. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel, I know it's confusing because you're like, isn't Israel God's people? Yes. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And so we read about kings in these two books in Israel who sort of follow after the line of Jeroboam, Jerry up north. And then we have kings who sort of follow in the line of David and his son Solomon and his son Rehoboam in the south. Israel and Judah. And the book of Kings goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So last year when Liverpool Football Club was battling for the Premier League title, two things had to happen. Man City had to lose or draw their final game. And Liverpool had to win their final game. And these games were happening at the same time. And so our family watched both. At the same time, we had a TV running and we had a computer running in the living room. And we were watching. Some of you do this with March Madness. Some of you do this with NFL probably. I don't know. Well, this is Kings from here on out. It's a split screen. Israel and Judah going on at the same time. Keep that in mind and pay attention. If the king is from Israel, the north, or from Judah, David's city, David's tribe. That's the first key. The second key we'll call the prophets. This is huge for understanding these two books. So the prophets play a major role in this part of God's story. You've probably heard of Elijah. Anybody? Or Elisha. Isaiah. Jonah. They're all in kings. So is Ahijah. And Shemaiah. And Jehu. And Micaiah. And the great prophetess Huldah. And many others who remain unnamed. The prophets are so important in kings that Whitney Woolard thinks kings should actually be called prophets versus kings. And that's brilliant. 
Because that's what most of Kings is, especially in this section of Kings. It's a contest between God's word through the prophet and God's king. And in a battle between the word of God and the human king, who do you think wins? The word every time. And that's what you get in first and second Kings. See, the prophets are like preachers. When you hear the word prophet, I don't know if you're like me, I think just fortune teller. Don't you? When you hear the word prophet, you think fortune teller. No, no, no. In the scriptures, prophets are basically just preachers. They preach God's word. And yeah, sometimes that includes statements about the future. Foretelling. But most of the time, the prophets are just there to foretell. To tell forth what it is that God says. As Willard puts it, they basically serve God's word. They basically shove God's word into the king's face all the time. To sort of, almost as, a, as an accountability. And everything hinges on the king's reaction. If they respond with trust and repentance, things go well. And if they don't, well, you get what you read in First and Second Kings. Because there are just very few exceptions where kings respond to the prophets. And it results in disaster. And the third key I want to give you is the nations. See, when you're reading First and Second Kings, we need to keep in mind that Israel and Judah are in constant contact with the surrounding empires of the day. Egypt, Aram, which could also be called Syria. And then over the course of kings, Assyria becomes an empire. And then after that, Babylon becomes an empire. And this is important because Israel is supposed to bless the nations. And instead, what we read about in First and Second Kings is we read that God is using these empires to, in a sense, judge his own people. And that's crazy. That's upside down, isn't it? And so the whole time you're reading this, you should be like tense. Something's not right. We got off to a good start, or so we thought. Something isn't right. So with these three keys, we can kind of navigate what basically goes on through the rest of Kings in the second part. And we can do that by way of Kings and Prophets. So with the Kings, I want to summarize this very quickly. Again, 39 Kings. I'm not going to be able to go through this. But I can summarize them visually. Without that. But that. (laughs) If you could read those, those are the names of the Kings. And on the left, you have the Kings in uh, what I believe is Israel, and on the right you have the kings from Judah. And according to this, which I didn't make, but according to this here, the red kings, the ones highlighted in red there, are described as evil and, and sort of bad in kings. And then you have sort of mixed bags in the tan, and then with the blue you have predominantly good kings. So I can't possibly talk about every single king here. They each have interesting stories. Each probably worth an own sermon in themselves. But I can't point out the obvious. There's a ton of red here. (laughs) Right? A ton of evil. That's what it is. I mean, by God's own word. And even the tan and blue, to be honest, with a close reading, is not as tan and blue as it looks. Which takes us to the prophets. Again, why are the prophets so central in this section? Well, because they remind us that God is still king. Despite all this red. His word still rules. 
bad things are like false advertising. And God won't let that happen, so he creates the office of the prophet. And we see this with Elijah in chapter 17 through 22, who confronts the false advertising of King Ahab. Maybe that rings a bell. King Ahab. If Ahab was an R on the top of a circle, he would basically be no R at all. In fact, he would be representing the God of Canaan, which would, would be Baal at the time. Baal was supposed to be the king of rain and fertility, but Elijah demonstrates over and over and over again that God, Yahweh, is the Lord of all. And the Lord of rain and drought. And on Mount Carmel, maybe you know this story, Elijah humiliates the false prophets of Baal because of their false advertising. And Ahab's false advertising. And idolatry. And we see this with Elisha, Elijah's follower. Elisha is like a window into the life of God when it's absent from almost every ruler here. He heals bad water in Jericho. He commands water. He heals outsiders and lepers. He multiplies food. He looks a lot like a representative ought to look. And so in this section too, in a nutshell, I would summarize it this way. God's kings shutting out God's prophets. Which takes us to the final section. The unthinkable exile. This exile of God's people from the land that God gave them happens in a one-two step. First in the north and then in the south. So first Israel. By chapter 15, the kings of Israel are a mess. There's assassinations. There's conspiracy. And then eventually the empire of Assyria just steps in and takes them down. And so in chapter 17, verse 6, puts it this way. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, another way of describing the northern kingdom. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. And the rest of chapter 17 tells us why. Israel and her kings walked, and I'm quoting, walked in all the sins Jeroboam did. They weren't representing God. And then we're left wondering, will Judah be next? This sort of solitary southern kingdom, this sort of city in which the promise of David rests. And at first things look better. Chapters 18 through 20 in the second Kings describes a godly king like David named Hezekiah. And he actually listens to the prophet Isaiah. And surprise, it goes well for Judah. But even the best of kings starts to brag. Things start to go sideways and downhill again. Manasseh takes the throne. He's a special kind of evil. And then Amnon as well. And then we meet Josiah, who is in a way an ideal R, again at the top of the circle. He cleans the temple. He restores true worship. He institutes the Passover, which we learn hasn't even been celebrated for like 400 years. But it's too little, too late. A few more kings follow, but by the time we get to the end of Kings, Babylon's knocking on the door. And then the unthinkable happens. The temple, the house for God's name is destroyed. And Judah and people in it, most of them, are taken to Babylon to live. And that's how Kings essentially ends. With the unthinkable. Except we get this strange ending. The very, very end. If you have a Bible, you can look at it. This very strange paragraph is about Josiah's grandson. You know, I keep mentioning Marvel, but you know how you watch the you know how you watch the um, the credits roll and everybody stays in the theater because there's a little thing at the end and everybody's like, oh, there's more. That's exactly what's going on here. Marvel stole that from Seven Kings. 
Because what you have in this last paragraph is you have this little tidbit of information about Josiah's grandson. His name is Jehoiakim. And at the end of Kings, this imprisoned, sort of exiled former king of Judah is released from jail. And the whole thing ends with him eating at Babylon's table. The end. (laughs) What on earth does this have to do with us? I'm going to pray and we're going to ask God. Lord, would you use this brief and insufficient overview of kings to draw our hearts to the king of kings this morning? And it's in his name we pray this. Amen. Well, a few summers ago, I went backpacking in the high Sierras of the Sierra Nevada mountain range. I'd never spent any time in the backcountry before in my life. And so I didn't know what to expect. And I was amazed. I was absolutely amazed to be surrounded only by nature and not around any humans. But the isolation, I will admit, was also kind of scary. We barely saw any other people out there. And then when we did, they all had these funny buttons on their backpack straps. I learned what those were. They're GPS buttons. So that when you get lost or injured, you can press the button and a search and rescue team just comes find you. Comes and finds you. I didn't have one of those. (laughs) I didn't know they existed, actually. So getting lost wasn't an option. So I will say this, though. Gratefully, we didn't need the button. The trail we were on was well-marked. It was well-tried. Before GPS buttons, there's this thing that people in the backcountry relied on, sometimes called a trailblaze. A trailblaze. And many people still do rely on these. I recently learned about the tradition of trailblazing. It's not just a basketball team. I thought a trailblazer was somebody who set fire to a trail, by the way. But apparently, I learned, it's just somebody who paints a blaze mark on a tree for other people to see. A blaze mark. A trailblaze is a small marker. It's a slash of paint that helps people know they are not lost. Sometimes these are called reassurance blazes. Isn't that lovely? Reassurance blazes. They reassure the backpacker that they're not lost, despite all evidence. Well, this is how I want you to think about kings. It's how kings functioned, I think, in the life of the original readers. The original readers were in exile. They were confused. Everything around them looked bad. It looks like God has abandoned his mission. It looks like God has abandoned his promises. It looks like that because there's no more temple. There's no more land. There's no more king. How are the nations going to know about God? Game over. That's how it feels. They're lost. And so kings is given to exiles as a reassurance place. It says to them, you are not lost. And in two important ways. God is still in control. And God is still committed to his rescue mission. The first thing I think we see in this first and second Kings is that God is in control of it all. The author of Kings wants us all to know that this is God's story from beginning to end. He's not surprised by any of this. He's writing this story. We see just one example of this in 1 Kings 12, 15, which says... So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord 
that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Now, what is the takeaway? The takeaway is that all of this looks like chaos. The author of Kings wants us to know there's an author over it all. God is in control. He's writing the story. Over a decade ago, our family was overwhelmed with an unexpected and traumatic birth story. And some of you were there for that. I remember sitting down in that era of my life in a Starbucks reading a book on suffering, which I don't recommend. Don't read books on suffering when you're suffering. I mean, I did it, so it's okay. That's what you need to do. In the end, the thing that comforted me most, though, through all of that season, was the truth that what was happening in my life was not a result of chaos. It didn't answer all the questions. There's a ton of questions. But the peace comes from this mystery that God was still in control. It wasn't in a way I had planned. It wasn't in a way that I even preferred. But my story, I knew, was not wasted because my story, in the end, was from His hand. Well, Kings doesn't care about philosophical debates about human agency and divine sovereignty. It doesn't care about that. Kings wants scared and lost people to know that God is in control and that he's writing the story. And it'll be okay. Underneath everything, and I mean everything, underneath everything is not chaos, but the creator's steady hand. Everything. He's writing the story, which means when you're lost in exile, it's good news. It's a reassurance place. The second thing I think Kings does and that functions in this way is that it tells us that God is still committed to his rescue mission. There's a reoccurring image in first and second Kings, and it's an image of a lamp. God compares his promise to David to a lamp that is burning. And despite the sort of hurricane force winds blowing in kings, this lamp never goes out. If you want to read 1 and 2 Kings at home, which I recommend you do, just follow the lamp. So in chapter 11 of 1 Kings, in verse 36, we read this. Yet to his son I will give one tribe that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I've chosen to put my name. Fast forward four chapters, chapter 15, verse 4. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp. Nevertheless, God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. And then in 2 Kings chapter 8, we read this, verse 18. Jehoram did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant. Why? Since he promised to give a lamp to him, his wife, and to his sons forever. And that, my friends, is the explanation for that strange postscript at the end. When the credits roll and we learn about Josiah's grandson released from prison and gaining favor in Babylon, why? 
God is keeping the lamp lit. That's why. I was a lifeguard in my local pool during high school summers. Gratefully, I never had to jump in and rescue anybody. Uh, But I was trained to rescue people who were drowning. I was trained to do that. And one of the ways they trained us was to grab the drowning person from behind with your flotation device. And it was lost on me then because I was just kind of a high schooler. I don't know why. Well, never mind. I was a high schooler. Entrusted to like rescue other people, which is crazy to me. But there it was. This was lost on me at the time, though. I've certainly, I have recently learned the purpose of this coming from behind with the flotation device. Because if you don't have a flotation device and you approach the person drowning from the front, then the drowning person will treat you like a flotation device. And then that means you both drown. Well, this is what I think of when I read Kings. God commits to our rescue, but we do everything we know how to get in the way of his rescue. If God's rescue is a lamp, we pull out the leaf blower, don't we? Try to blow it out. You can probably think in your own life of leaf blower postures of heart, leaf blower occasions. Maybe that's you even now. We are, in a way, fighting with the Lord's own rescue. But God keeps his lamb burning, doesn't he? Why? Because he said he would. That's grace. God is committed to his rescue plan. Hear me. God is committed to his rescue plan even when we get in the way of said rescue. That is scandalous grace. I can't think of something more scandalous. See, this smoldering lamp in 1 and 2 Kings will eventually grow to be the light of the world. The rescuer, the R on top of the circle, the true son of David, the king, yes, of kings. Who, like Solomon, rides into his city on a donkey for his coronation. But unlike Solomon, receives a crown in the form of thorns and is enthroned on a Roman torture device. The curse of the cross for you and for me. The light of the world, Jesus. Who, like Solomon, has untold riches. But unlike Solomon, became poor to give us his inheritance and make us rich in him. Jesus, the King of Kings. Who, like Solomon, wins our battles. Yes, he wins our battles. But unlike Solomon, wins through trust in his Father. Even when it means, especially when it means death on a cross, not military might. Who, like Solomon, is wise. Jesus is walking wisdom, but unlike Solomon, uses his wisdom to make you flourish, not just sort of impress visitors. And who's not just like Solomon, but but, but like his father David, King David, who like David obeys God for the blessing of his people. But unlike David, obeys perfectly on our behalf. In 1 Kings 15, 4, we read this about King Abijam's sin. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. Why? Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. He talked about last week. 
It's been said about this that if many people, even generationally, benefited from the imperfect obedience of King David, how much more do we today benefit from the perfect obedience of Jesus, the true King of David? He is King. We all flourish. His righteousness is our righteousness. His obedience is our obedience. And guess what? He absorbed the covenant curse, the exile. He was exiled so that we would always be brought near. And Jesus, who, as Whitney Willard points out, doesn't need a prophet to keep him in check because he is a, the perfect prophet. Jesus is the Word of God in flesh. Everything he says is true. As the old Bible translations put it, Jesus performed his word. He's the true prophet. He's the perfect Elijah who blesses the nations, who multiplies bread, who ascends into heaven. He's the perfect Elisha who isn't afraid to touch and heal lepers, even when they're from the outside, who raises the dead, who transforms water, who warns of judgment. But unlike the prophets who only warn of judgment, Jesus is judged in our place. He takes the covenant curse in our place. He's exiled so that we never would be. Jesus is a walking temple. Our sin tears him down, but he rises again. He makes you a temple. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He says, you are mine. I am yours. I will forever be with you. Jesus is the King of Kings. Are you worshiping? See, Kings is one giant reassurance blaze painted in the wilderness of exile. God is in control and is committed to his rescue plan. And the proof? Christ, the anointed one, Jesus, the King of Kings, the R of R's. What does this mean for you? It means that you can, briefly, this means that you can trust the author. That's what I want you to walk away with. You can trust the author. If this giant mess leads to Jesus, then you can trust God with your story too. Wendell Berry has a line in his poem, Manifesto, Mad Farmer, Liberation Front. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. It's a great line. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. That is impossible joy. And it's yours. It's yours. Because we serve serve the King of Kings. And so Lord, we ask that you would indeed give us this impossible joy. In the midst of what feels like exile. But we have reassurance. And it's in Jesus. The King of Kings. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.